Please turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I must apologize, we are taking yet another detour here. And uh, I promise you we will be done with Romans soon. And I am uh, excited about where I believe the Lord would have us to go next. Uh, But I really sensed that the Lord would have me go here today in the text that is before us. It's a classic text on baptism. Classic text, one that I think many of us know well. And what we see in this chapter before us today is it's really a full progression. It's a man that is seeking after God to the best of his ability. He doesn't have a complete understanding or knowledge of God, but he's doing what he can with what he has. But at the same time, unbeknownst to him, God is pursuing him. God is drawing him. And what we see in our text is what I would call a a full progression or a a total immersion, if you will, into the Christian life for this seeker. He is seeking after God. God is drawing him. And before the end of our our text, our story here, we're going to see this brother go all the way in, all the way into a full relationship with Jesus Christ and be baptized right there. And that's where we will conclude the message today. As we finish up, we're going we're gonna to go into the waters of baptism, and I'm excited to be able to do this and to do it indoors for the first time, I think, ever in this building. So pretty cool. I'm excited to be able to share in this day with you. It's a very special time for those who are being baptized. And so we have a couple of characters in this, this story, a couple of people that we need to know. One is Philip. Philip was an evangelist. He was one of the men that was marked out to be a servant in the church in Acts chapter 6, I believe it is. But he went on to be used mightily as an evangelist. And there's another guy that we're not told his name, but we know that he's an Ethiopian and that he is a nobleman. He is a a high-ranking official and serves the queen in Ethiopia. And he is here in Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. And these are the two main players in the story that is before us and. And it's good to be familiar with those, those guys. And what I've titled this message is The Baptized Life. The Baptized Life. Because the word baptized, it actually comes, is transliterated from the Greek. The Greek word is baptizo, and it's brought into the English as baptized, but it actually means to dunk or to immerse. And that's the idea of baptism. They are immersed into the waters of baptism. And that's the kind of life we want to live in Christ, is it not? I want it all and nothing less. I want to be immersed fully. I want to go in over my head in Christ. I want all that God has for me and nothing less. Amen? And I know that that is uh, the sentiment that I would say many, if not most, if not all of us in this room share. And that is so very important. You know, this word baptized, it's, we use it, I think, often in, in common everyday language. I remember uh, when I became the senior pastor here, Pastor Bill, the, the, my pastor, the one who uh, basically transitioned out and, and placed me in this position, when things would begin to get challenging, when things would get hard, he would say, you're being baptized. You're, you're getting the baptism into pastoral ministry here. And, and so... We understand that. And Jesus even used this same word for Himself and His suffering. He had a couple of disciples who really wanted to sit at His right and left hand in His kingdom. You remember that? 
And so Jesus asked this question in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. He says, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Jesus was going to enter into. He was going to be immersed into suffering beyond anything that we could ever know or understand. And they didn't really understand what they were asking Jesus. And so we see that's how this, this language is often employed. And that's the way I'm going to use it today in our text as I talk about living the baptized life. Fully immersed into the Christian life. That's what we see in our text. That is what God wants for us. And I believe that's what we want for ourselves and for others, is it not? And so with that, if you would look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to look at a few verses in the beginning of the chapter uh, where we see Philip, the evangelist, in action. And then all of a sudden, there's kind of this, uh, this pulling away from that story, and it goes to a whole other scene with Simon, the sorcerer, if you know the story. And then we come back to the story with Philip in uh, verse 26 of chapter 8. And so obviously, I'm not going to cover all the chapter, just the, the relevant verses. So we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. If you look at the latter part of verse 1 there, that's where we're going to start. And I, and I outlined it like this. So what we see here is that God is going to use a great persecution to move Philip the evangelist to Samaria. That's, what, that's where we start in our story today. God is going to use great difficulty to move Philip along. And so with that, I, I would say, kind of point number one, God can use great difficulty to move His people forward. And God does, does He not? God oftentimes uses the difficulties in our lives to get us moving, to move us forward. So verse 1, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So here we have it. The disciples had been told by Jesus. What did Jesus tell them? He said to go. Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. The disciples were to, to fan out. They were to spread they were to go throughout Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, preaching Christ. But there was a problem. They didn't do that. They, they localized. They centralized right there in Jerusalem. And so what happens here is persecution strikes. We all know the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always Paul. He was Saul, a Pharisee and a, a, a hater of the church. And so he was persecuting the Christians there. And because of that persecution, what happened? The Christians scattered. And God used that to get his people where he wanted them to be so he could use them the way that he wanted to use them. And that is our story. That is what we have with Philip, the evangelist here. So just I would like to note that God does use hardship to move us in this life. And I think a lot of us know this. You know, we get content, don't we? We settle in. Things are okay. We're good with how they are. No need to keep moving forward. No need to gain ground. I'm just going to kick back. I'm going to relax and take it easy. We can get apathetic. We can even get lazy. 
But God would have us to go. God wants to use us. And oftentimes, God will turn up the heat to get us going. And this is very natural. You've probably heard the story of uh, the Tower of Babel, right? Maybe you heard it said that people were building a ladder to heaven, as it were, a tower so that they could reach heaven. But that's not really what the text says, and that's not really what was happening there. See, God had commanded that man and woman multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth. But they didn't do that either. They just stayed right there in that one uh, place, and they grew, and they became uh, really brilliant, and they had ingenuity, and they said, you know what? We're going to stay right here. We're going to build this tower that will reach to the heavens, and it's going to be a monument to our greatness. That's really what was, what was happening there. So what did God do? He scattered them. He confused their language so that they could no longer communicate because God told them to go, and they didn't. So God dispersed them. And so that's, we see this, it's in our nature. And so God knows how to move us along. And so God will use difficulties in our lives oftentimes to do, to do just that. God will also use hardship to make us. God uses hardship to move us. God can use hardship to make us, to change us. You know, the reality is, folks, we are made in the valley. We love those mountaintop experiences, don't we? We love it when it's sweet, when it's all good, when life is great, when God does something spectacular. We would love to live in that place. Would we not? But so often, that's, that's not where God has us. God has us down in the valley. That's where we are made. That's where we are refined in the fire. And so God uses these kinds of things to make us and to move us. And that's what we see happening here to the Christians and happening to Philip the evangelist. And you know, the reality is that so oftentimes we don't like this. We pray against, I think, the very things that God has brought into our lives for His purposes. Have you ever considered that? When things are going the way we don't want them to go, we want to get out from underneath that. We don't want to experience the difficulties. We don't want to experience any of that, so we, we pray against it, not considering that what might be happening here is God is trying to shape us, change us, make us, move us. And God uses all kinds of things, tragedies, mistakes, failures, even our own rebelliousness. God is not hindered or thwarted by any of that. God is absolutely able. And I just look at my own life, you know. I think about who I am, where I am, what I have. I think about you guys, the gift that you are to me from God. And I wouldn't have any of this today if it wasn't for the hardships that I've gone through. If it wasn't for the failures in my life that God has used to move me forward. And so we don't often see that as a gift or a grace from God, but that is what it is oftentimes, you know? And so God has a way of using difficulty to move His people forward and to make us who He would have us be. Now look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and the lame were healed and there was great joy in that city. So here we have Philip in Samaria. This is a very unlikely place for him to be. 
there were really three major regions in Israel at this time. So in the southern, southernmost region, it was Judea, and then in the, the central part of Israel was Samaria, and in the northernmost part was Galilee. I suppose in some ways it's much like how California is, is laid out. And so the middle part of Israel, central Israel, was kind of a no-go zone for most of the Jews because there was some history there. That at one point in time, the Babylonians came in and they defeated Israel in battle and they took most of the people out of the land and they left some of their own. Some Babylonian natives moved in and some of the Israelites were not taken out. They intermarried with the Babylonians. So when Israel came back into the land, Years later, there were these people here who had intermarried with the Babylonians and they were seen as traitors by, by the Jews and they were, they were hated, deeply hated. And so Jews, whenever they would pass through Samaria, they wouldn't. They would actually go around. They would go out of their way to go around Samaria. And so there was some real history here. But God was not hindered by that. You know, Jesus, when He met the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan in Samaria. And it was said of Jesus that He had to go there. God had an appointment for Jesus in that place. You know, God is not bound by so many of the limitations and restrictions that we put on ourselves or others. God was not bound by time, space, gender, race, and He had a divine appointment there. And that's what we see in our story today. And so uh, Philip was there ministering to the Samaritans, and God was doing an extraordinary work in the midst of those people. We're told that they, were, they heeded the words of, of Philip. You know what that means? They received the message. They believed the Gospel. They accepted and trusted Christ. They were responding favorably to the Gospel. And God was moving in extraordinary ways. There were healings. Lives were being restored. There was great joy in the city. There was all kinds of excitement. That was the place to be. Right? That's where we want to be, is it not? Where all the action is at. Well, that brings us to point number two. God calls Philip to leave Samaria and to go to a deserted place. This is verse 26. So if you skip ahead to verse 26. God calls Philip to leave Samaria and go to a deserted place. So, point of application here. God knows what He is doing even though we might not understand or agree. God knows what He's doing even though we might not understand or agree. This would make no sense. He is where all the action is at. And He's being told to go to a deserted place now. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. I think that little note is inserted there for us. That's very significant. So he's being told to leave the city where all this amazing stuff is happening and now to go to a deserted place, to go to the desert. Philip was told to go south, to go to a deserted place. And I'm sure that this made no sense to him. On a human level, it doesn't make sense. You know, why leave the revival? Why leave the place where everybody is responding and where all the miracles are happening and where God is really moving in a spectacular way? But God was leading Philip to someone in particular. See, God knew what He was doing. And there was somebody that God was drawing to Himself. One person. 
He called Philip to leave the revival and to go to this deserted place where he was going to meet this one person in particular. Because you know what? God cares about one person. Right? God values one person who needs salvation, who needs Christ. And the reality is that God knows us intimately. He knows everything about you. Every, everything you've ever, do, ever done, every, every thought that's ever crossed your mind, God knows you. Personally, intimately, He loves you. And that, that's what we see here. In the midst of all this excitement, there was somebody somewhere else that God wanted to bring in. So He redirected Philip in a, to a different place. And you know, Jesus talked about this very thing. And that's really the theme of Luke chapter 15. All of heaven erupts in praise over one sinner who receives salvation. And so we see the, the story of the ten coins, the lady that lost a coin and she swept the whole house over till she found it. And she called all her neighbors and they celebrated. Then there's the, the 99 sheep and the one. Remember the one sheep got away and the good shepherd went after that sheep. And then the, 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 the story of the, the uh, prodigal son who got away, but he came back. And every time, all of heaven erupted. All the angels in heaven celebrated over one who was found. And we see that in this text here. There was somebody who was seeking after God to the best of their ability, and that meant something to God. And God was going to honor that. And God was going to draw this guy. He was going to find him. He was going to bring him in. So God knows what He's doing. As I said, that's the point. We may not always understand what God is doing. And we may not always agree with it. But I think we need to make peace with the fact that that's okay. Am I right? God is God. We are not. We don't know everything. We never will know everything. And I don't know about you guys. I'm quite okay with that. I'm, I'm, having a, I'm having a hard enough time just dealing with what I do know and what I got right in front of me, right? I'll let God be God. I'll let Him do His thing. And so that's what we see there. And this brings us to our third point in our text. What we see here is that God has a divine appointment for Philip in the desert. So, kind of point of application here. God knows more than us, and you will never regret obeying Him. God knows things that we don't know. God would direct us sometimes in ways that we don't understand. God would call us to places of obedience that we may not necessarily want to, to do or go to, but we will never, ever regret obeying God. Can I get an amen on that? Verse 27, So he arose and went, and behold... A man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So I love this phrase. He arose and went in obedience. He went. The Lord told him to go and he went. As I said, you'll never ever, I've never regretted doing what the Lord has told me to do. Have you? I have often, if not always, regretted not doing what God told me to do. That will never go good for you. It just doesn't. But no matter how hard it is, no matter how confusing it may seem, 
If we do what God has called us to do or asked us to do, we will never, ever regret that, ever. So he goes, and it says, behold. I think it's kind of like saying, look, what do you know? There's somebody here. God had somebody here in this deserted place for Philip to, uh, to come and to minister to. And we're told that it's an Ethiopian eunuch who is under Candace the queen. Now, this is a different Ethiopia. Uh, this was a very large kingdom south of Egypt. It would be modern-day Sudan. And so that's, that's where this guy is from, and he is serving under this uh, queen named Candace. Now, Candace is most likely not her name. This would have been a title similar to Pharaoh or Caesar or something like that. And we're told that he's a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to tell you. But uh, it could mean a couple of different things. And I think what, what is really being communicated here is that he was a government official, high-ranking court officer. And it could be that he has been dedicated to the service of this queen for life. He will never marry, never have children. His life, for the rest of his life, will be in service to the queen there in Ethiopia. And we're told that he had charge of all of her treasury. That's a big deal. So he was responsible for all of the wealth of the queen in that kingdom. This man would be a man of great nobility. Great nobility. But he was seeking God. And that's what I think we should really take note of here. This was a man who was looking for God. He was doing the best he could with what he had. He went to the temple there in Jerusalem to worship the living God. You know what the Bible says when we seek God? That we'll find Him. Jeremiah 29.13 says, And you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. If you search for God, if you seek for God, if you call upon God's name and say, Reveal yourself to Me, He will. We have that confidence. The Bible says that we are to seek after God with all of our heart. You know, we're to seek after God like fine gold and treasure. There's a lot of things that we seek in this life in vain. There is a lot of effort and energy, struggle and toil that we have put into so many other things in this life. But there's one thing that is greater than any other thing. There's one treasure above any earthly treasure, and that is God Himself. That is the pursuit of God. And so he was seeking just that. And you know what's so awesome is that the Spirit of God was actively drawing this man. And the Bible says that if we draw near to God, what? He will draw near to us. James 4.8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. How awesome is that? What a promise to, to cling to. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So this man is seeking God. Little did he know that God was, was making a beeline straight to him. God was sending someone to this man. The Spirit was placing someone in his path. And I love this. You know, God puts people in our lives. Did you know that? I know you know that. God puts special people in our lives. People called by God to help us, to bless us, to encourage us, to lead us. And God puts us in other people's lives to do the same. And so I've heard it said that we should really try to understand who are the people in our lives that God has placed there to look to and to learn from, and who are we being that to? 
Who are we discipling? Who are we leading? Who are we trying to, to direct, as it were? But I praise God for this gift. He's put so many special people in, in my life over the years, and even to date, people in this very room that I love dearly, that I respect dearly, that I have benefited and grown from tremendously. And so just recognizing that, what a gift, what a blessing. God does do that. He puts people in our lives, and we see that very thing here. He put Philip the evangelist right there in this man's path. They crossed paths here. There was a divine appointment that took place this day. God had business to do. God was going to do something special in this man's life, and he sent somebody just for that very moment. So what we see happen here, this brings us to our next point, point number four. We see that Christ is revealed to this man fully from the Scriptures. Christ is revealed to the nobleman from the Scriptures. Point of application here. God's intention is for us to fully understand and know Christ. Just as we see happen in this text right here, that's God's desire for us. That we would fully know Christ and fully understand Him. And it is a life's journey. I mean, we can know Him in a moment. To know Him experientially. To know Him relationally. But we spend our whole life growing in our knowledge of Him. Well, that's God's intention, and He's getting ready to make this happen. So verse 30. So Philip ran to Him and heard Him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and to sit with him. I love that verse. First thing I notice here is that Philip ran. Philip got his marching orders and he got after it. God told him to go. He went. In fact, he ran. He was eager. He was aggressive. And then he hears this guy reading from the prophet Isaiah. I mean, that had to have been amazing to Philip. And so he asked him, he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Now, that's an important question. That's a great question to ask. Because it's one thing to hear it, it's another thing to understand it. One thing to understand it, it's an entirely other thing to live it. And so I think that's an important question to ask. You know, people don't always understand, and we should never assume that they do. And you know what? It's okay if we don't understand things at first, but the goal is to gain understanding. The goal is to grow in our understanding of this great truth. And that's why we, we put the emphasis that we do on, on teaching the Word of God here, and all of our gatherings are centered on that so that we can help one another, so that we can encourage one another. As the Word of God is taught and as we, as we gather in groups for study and as we have one-on-one -on -one discipleship and group discipleship and, and so on and so forth, that's the aim. And so that we can fully understand these things. This guy gives a very humble response. I love it. This is great. He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Have you ever felt like that? I think that's a very common thing. You read the Bible and think, what in the world is this saying? How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And hey, that's God's design. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing for us to seek to have people in our lives who can help walk us through it. That's how we learn. And if you have somebody who's asking you questions, that's how you learn. Because oftentimes we get questions that we don't know how to answer, right? And so what do we do? We go to somebody else. And now you have the answer and you're able to tell it to somebody else. And so 
that's the learning process, and we're all in this together, and that's a great place to be. And so we see this happening here with Philip and this nobleman, and he, he asks him to come and sit with him, and he does. And we see evangelism and discipleship happening here on a personal, one-on-one kind of way. And so verse 32, it says that the place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So this is a quotation from Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. Now that chapter is one of the most amazing chapters in the Old Testament. It is one of the most graphic, prophetic depictions of the suffering of Christ, I think, in the whole of the Old Testament. There are, I think, some verses in Psalm 22 that really speak clearly to the crucifixion and suffering of Jesus, which is amazing because that happened a thousand years before Roman crucifixion was even invented. But here in Isaiah 53, we have this chapter which talks about the suffering servant the one who would suffer in the place of guilty sinners. You all know the verse. By His stripes we are what? We're healed by His stripes. Our iniquity, the iniquity of us all, was placed on Him. And He was bruised. He was crushed for our iniquity. And so that's the chapter that he is reading from here. And the verse specifically is talking about how Jesus did it willingly. He went silently as a sheep before the shearers. He didn't fight back. He didn't try to save himself. Jesus went all the way and he went willingly. And Jesus talks about this very thing in John chapter 12, verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. The hour that Jesus is talking about is his hour of suffering on the cross, suffering for the sins of humanity, suffering the wrath of God there in our stead. That is the hour that Christ is talking about. And He says, am I supposed to pray that I be delivered from this hour? This is the reason that I came. So Jesus went willingly. And this was prophesied in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years earlier, that that was going to happen. And that was going to be His attitude. And that is the reality, folks, brothers and sisters. Christ went to the cross willingly. He gave it all. Jesus went all the way. He did not stop short. He was no victim. He was the victor. He laid down His life so that He could purchase the church, so that He could accomplish salvation for us. Jesus died the death of a sinner, though He lived a perfect life. He never broke any commandment of His Father. He only did that which was pleasing to God. How many times have we broken God's law? I mean, how many times today? But Christ never once sinned. He was truly the innocent one. But there on that cross where He willingly gave Himself to die, He suffered for our sin. Our sin was placed upon Him there. And it was washed away by the death of God's righteous One, His holy and innocent and beloved Son. And that's the good news. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
and that He suffered for you on the cross and you call upon His name and you trust Him for salvation, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be made new. You will have brand new life in Christ. Now, Jesus went all the way. Back to this idea of immersion. Jesus went all the way and He didn't stop short. So why would we do any less? Why, would we, why do we stop short? Why don't we go all the way in? Why, why do we hold back from giving God all that we have? Why do we stop short from trying to attain to all the riches that Christ has secured for us at the cross? As we so often do. We settle for less. We settle for other things. Well, Verse 34, So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the Scriptures, preached Jesus to him. So the man was a little confused. He wanted to know, who is this, who is this talking about here? This, this person that is being spoken of here, who is it? Well, Philip had the answer. Philip knew who it was, and Philip demonstrated from the Scriptures that it was Jesus Christ, none other. It was a prophecy of Him. And the reality is that the whole of the Scriptures point to Christ. I've talked about this recently. You can, you can see Christ in such a beautiful way throughout the pages of the Scriptures. It, is, it all points to Him in some way, whether it's a typology or a prophecy or an actual appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, what we would call a theophany. The whole of the Scriptures are about Him, and Jesus said so. Jesus said this much. And I think the point here is that so often we make the Bible about us. Now, Jesus said it's about Him. Philip preached Christ from the Scriptures. And so often we look to the Bible and we go straight into, what does this say to me? Where am I at in this verse? Instead, we should look to it and say, what does this say about God? What does this say about the character and the nature of God? What does this say about the will of God? What does this say about how I can live in a more pleasing way to God, serve God? That's, that's the proper order, and that was the way Philip approached it. Philip pointed to Christ in the Scriptures to this man. So what happens here? He wants to be baptized. He wants to be baptized. So that leads us to our fifth and final point. And I would say this as a point of application. God's desire for the Christian is full immersion into all that Christ has for us. God's desire for the Christian is full immersion into all that Christ has for us. And that's what this guy, he wanted. He was seeking God. God brought somebody into his life to show him from the Scriptures the way, the truth, and the life. And that was Jesus. And then he sees this water here, verse 36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, Philip's message undoubtedly involved a few things, a few key components. Belief in Christ, trusting Jesus as the Savior, repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Christ, and last but not least, baptism, being water baptized. These are such core truths that the apostles often preached. 
And so undoubtedly, everything that Philip was saying to this guy led him to this place. That was the command of Christ, and that was the common message of the apostles. And as they traveled along, here appeared a body of water. And the man asked, is there anything that would stop me from being baptized? I love his heart. Don't you love that? He says, look, there's water right here. Is there anything that stops me? Is there anything that would hinder me from being baptized right now? He wants to know, can he go for it? I think, you know, oftentimes we find people have a different attitude. They come up with all kinds of reasons why they can't, why they shouldn't, why they're not ready, why now is not the time. This guy, he wanted it all. He trusted Christ and he wanted to be baptized right then and there. He wanted all that Christ had for him, and he didn't settle for less. I remember as a new believer, I was talking with a guy and uh, a pastor at a Calvary Chapel in South Carolina, and I remember him telling me that. He's like, you know, I just want all that God has for me. He was talking about spiritual gifts. And you know, there's a lot of, lot of questions, and there's a lot of debate in the church about what gifts are functional today and, and what gifts are not, and so on and so forth. But I loved his attitude. I, his, his heart was... I just know that I need whatever God has for me. I need every bit of it and nothing less. And I, I feel that way, don't you? Man, I need whatever God has for me. I want all of what God has for me. And that is the attitude that this guy has. So verse 37, Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So Philip did give him one prerequisite. He said, what would hinder me from being baptized? He says that you must believe with all your heart. Believe what? Believe what? That Jesus is the Son of God. Clearly, Philip had already emphasized this in his teaching to this brother. And so he said, you may be baptized if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God that he must confess Christ and to do so with all of his heart. You know the verse in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Paul, before he, he shares that verse, he kind of quotes from Deuteronomy. I love this. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, he quotes there in Romans 10. I'll just read to you from Deuteronomy. It says this, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So what Moses was saying to the people is God's Word is so near. You don't have to travel the ocean. You don't have to climb the mountains to find it and bring it back. It is very near. The Word of God is right there. He said it's in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And then on that note, Paul says this in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. Will be saved. I love that. It's so much closer than you think. 
to know the Lord and to be saved. He is so near. He's as near as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ. You don't have to traverse the ocean. You don't have to beat yourself. You don't have to come up with a long list of do's and don'ts. You don't have to do any of that. You simply believe. Believe the message. Believe the Gospel. Believe Christ. Trust in Him. Turn to Him. And you will be saved. And that's what happened in our story here with this man. And he was ready to be baptized. So verse 38 So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. He went all the way, brothers and sisters. He trusted Christ. He was baptized that day in obedience to the Lord's command. Because it is a command. The Lord does say that we ought to be baptized. So we're getting ready to transition over here. I want to make some thoughts about, uh, some, share some thoughts with you about baptism. So this is very important. Okay, so let's reel it in. If you're daydreaming at all, front and center, especially for the folks that are being baptized, it's so important that you hear this. Very important. Baptism is a command. Jesus said that we're to go and to make disciples and we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what we are to do. Now, we don't believe that you need to be baptized to be saved, but we do believe that if you're uh, saved, you must be baptized. And if you aren't, then you're in disobedience to the Lord because Jesus said you must be baptized. So as I've already said, it's not a means of salvation. I believe that the Scriptures are crystal clear on this. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. There's nothing there said about baptism. And on and on we could go, and I could make that biblical defense. But baptism is so very important. It is so vital to the Christian for a number of reasons. And so let me just share with you a few reasons why baptism is so important and what it, what it means. So first off, baptism is a public identification with Christ. You are professing publicly. You are confessing publicly to an inner reality. I have been born again. I have trusted Christ. I am new in Him. And I will follow Him from this day forward. And I want to be baptized so that everyone can see I have made a commitment to follow Jesus. And that's, that's on one level the idea there. And in many other cultures, even in this day, when a person is baptized... That is when they are marked for persecution. If you're living in a place where it's very dangerous to be a Christian, the day that you're baptized, you are now marked. You know, Pastor John over at Grace Church, a dear brother, he was uh, sharing with me how he was in uh, Ethiopia not too long ago, and he was watching this. Baptisms were taking place, and people were getting baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus, but they were terrified absolutely terrified because they knew what this meant they knew what was going to happen afterward afterwards and he said there were points where people were even throwing up they were so terrified but you know they had this conviction that they they wanted to obey this command that they wanted to be identified with their lord and savior jesus christ it was that important and so they were willing to pay that price to be counted with jesus in that way publicly 
And so it's a means of identifying with Jesus Christ. That's what water baptism is. It's proclaiming to the world that you love Jesus and that you have decided to follow Him. It's also a very sacred practice in the sense that Jesus has given us two things in the church, two things that the Christians are to observe. Baptism, right? What's the other? Communion, exactly. The Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances that Jesus gave His church. Now, some people would differ on that and say that there are many more, but scripturally, there are two. And these are called, we refer to them as sacraments sometimes. Sacraments. The Lord's Supper and baptism. That word sacrament is very significant. It comes from a Latin term, sacramentum. And that was an oath that a Roman soldier would pledge when he was committing himself to the service of Rome and to fight with the, the Roman soldiers. It was, a, a, it was an oath unto death. Undying, unwavering loyalty to Rome. That was what sacramentum is. And there's a, a sense in which that's what baptism is. It's a pledge. I have decided to follow Jesus. I am going to be identified with Him in the waters of baptism and I am going to follow Him forever. He has my heart. He is my Lord. He is my King. And I will follow Him to the end of the earth for the rest of my life. It is a commitment for life. Baptism is an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the most significant things that we find in the pages of Scripture. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had been preaching grace. And he said some people might hear that and think, well then if it's all grace, if God's grace is so great, then can I just sin all I want to so that I can get more grace? Paul says absolutely not. Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even though even we also should walk in the newness of life. And so what those waters represent is the grave. And just as Jesus was crucified and He was buried and three days later He rose again from the grave victorious, the conqueror over sin, over death, we too, as we're lowered into the water, that represents going into the grave. And just as Jesus rose again, we too shall rise into the newness of life. The old man is dead. The new has come. And we are identifying with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So those waters represent a grave. The grave that you are being lowered into and that old person is gone and you come up and the new person is here. And I would say lastly, as I have said already, baptism is a picture of total immersion. You are going all the way in. You want everything that God has for you and you will settle for nothing less. We're not going, some people just kind of put their toes in the water, right? In life. Oh, that's cold. I don't think I'll get in today. Or, you know, you might have some who will go ankle deep. They'll wade in the waters a little bit. But then you have those who, who dive in head first. They want it all. They want Christ. They want all that Christ has secured for them. 
They want God and they will settle for nothing less. And they want to give themselves entirely to God. You know, we have God. God hasn't held anything back. The question is, how much of us does God have? And I believe that baptism is a picture of, Lord, I'm giving you everything. There's nothing that I'm going to withhold from you. I'm going to walk with you with a whole heart. I'm going to open my life up to you entirely. God, you can do whatever you want with me. Whatever you want. It's all yours. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not going to, de- to deny anything, Lord, from you. It's yours. Have all of me. That's such a beautiful picture to just jump in, to be immersed into the fullness of what God has. And that is the baptized life. Amen? Amen. That's what we want. That's what we need. That's what God has for us. And I know that that is the desire of, of all the believers here today. And so look, if you, if you don't know Christ, if you've heard this message and you think, I don't have this, you can have it today. You can have it in a moment. Like I said, it's just that close. It's as close as believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ and that you need Him, that you want Him, that you would turn from your sin and turn to Him and walk with Him. It's just that easy. You can call upon His name. We're going to have some worship playing here. So Joe, if you want to come on up. Maybe you are a Christian and you realize you haven't really been living this way. You've been kind of an ankle-deep Christian. And you realize that you want to go all the way. You can, I just want you to call upon the name of the Lord. Cry out to Him. And tell Him here in this moment, Lord, I want You. I want all of You. And I want to give You all of me. And if you want to be baptized, please come talk to us after the service and we will do baptisms again very soon. And, and we will... We will uh, baptize you gladly. So I just want to say real quick, we got four people being baptized today. We have Kat, who is a very dear sister, and she recently came to the Lord. And it's been so awesome to see the fruit in her life already, to see what God is doing. And this is the kind of stuff you live for, you know. And uh, it's been so sweet to see what Jesus is doing. Amen. And so I'm delighted to be able to, to baptize her today. And we have Alan, Matthew, and Johnny, the Viadere family. You may know them. And so Alan and uh, Matthew, I've been able to go on a mission trip to Mexico with them. And that was such a sweet time and got to know each other. And it was just a blessing to get to know you, my brothers. And for them to come forward today in obedience to the Lord for believers' baptism, is, it's just a, a special thing. And I'm, I'm so very honored to be able to do that with them. You know, this is, this is really, I would say, one other thing is this, this in a lot of ways is kind of like has been traditionally an entry into the church, if you will. This is a family. It's a covenant family. We are all so very different. We come from very different places in life. Odds are we would not know each other outside of here or have a lot in common, but there's one very real and very special thing that we have in common in Christ, and, and that is that, Christ Jesus. And He brings us together in Him. And when we're baptized, it's kind of like an entrance into that covenant community, into the church. And we are all one in Him, one family, one covenant community. And so this is just a special time. I can't say it enough. Father God, we love you, and we thank you for what we have been able to witness today. It's all to your glory, God. We pray for these folks that have been baptized today, God. 
There's a journey ahead of them. It is a, an adventure of the Christian life, and it's not an easy one. So we just pray a special blessing upon them, Father, as they move forward in this commitment they've made to you and how they've identified with you and your death and your resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that they would live in that resurrection power that comes by your Holy Spirit. So, Father God, we honor you, we love you, and we look to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.